The race is on and it looks like heartaches And the winner loses all Hello and welcome to the In the Ring Pedigree Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Thomas Fornital, back with you in the Brooklyn Bunker once again. Dizzy, a little bit dizzy from Las Vegas, but happy to have a bit of a normal work week. Things are going to be normal around here for a couple of weeks, and then I head over to the UK to go to Cheltenham and and all hell will break loose once again. But I'm really looking forward to these next several shows where I can sit in my office and talk to really interesting people uh, largely about the Kentucky Derby, but about other concerns in the, the horse business as well. And joining me as often as his busy schedule will allow will be from Windstar Farms, our friend and our co-host, Sean Tugel. What's up, Sean? Oh, doing great, Pete. Uh, good to hear your voice again. We haven't caught up in a couple of weeks. And uh, and certainly uh, the next time you're in town, look forward to hearing uh, about all the adventures from the NHC. That's certainly... Uh, something that uh, just through what, what you bring and, and Steve Bick and, and other people of, of getting that whole tournament and, and, and weekend uh, out in front of people, it sounds like an awesome time and uh, something that just even as a, as a casual bystander and somebody who, who knows people involved in it can stand there and root and cheer for, for people, it sounds like something that at some point I need to go probably uh, attend. You'd be good, I think. I mean, it's a lot of handicapping. It's a lot more handicapping than you typically do, so that might be tricky. But breeding angles can come in very, very handy in some of those races. Sometimes that can be as good a way to find a a long shot as any, as many listeners here know. And it was fun. We had had a few horsemen involved out there. I'll forget some and feel bad, but there were a couple of trainers. Carl Broberg had an entry. Uh, Mike Dini made a big run, actually, at the NHC this year. And it was just fun to follow along and see. Uh, Gary West was playing in the event. I'm pretty sure I saw him around there anyway, and I know he's played in contests before. But it was a fun mix, mostly a giant horse player convention, but definitely more and more overlap with the, the overall industry as time has gone on, too. But NHC, that's in the books. We're really now turning our attention and looking forward to this Triple Crown season. We've got two guests who will offer their thoughts on this year's Derby a little bit later in the show. But I thought, Sean, before we get to our guests, it might be fun to just uh, give a little bit of an overview and look ahead to where your thoughts are and my thoughts are on this year's Derby. Do you have, do you have a Derby horse picked out as of yet? Boy, it's hard to really put your finger on one. Um, certainly, Tis the Law has, has probably the most expansive uh, resume to date, only having that one loss with, with the tough trip in Kentucky. Uh, certainly, Thousand Words is a horse who uh, is starting to separate himself uh, from the pack a little bit with his last two victories, both those around two turns. And, you know, the big question mark certainly is Nadal, who's, who's two for two and and wants to try to uh, impersonate Justify going, uh, winning his, his main after the first year, and then um, trying to trying to get there in a short span of time. But uh, his his last race to San Vicente was was quite impressive, and he uh, cut out some pretty pretty uh, intense tractions there too. I'm going to hold your feet to the fire, and I'm going to do it with prices. These are not prices that are available in the USA, but for listeners listening around the world, these may be actual prices you can bet. I'm going to mention, I'll I'll read back the prices of the horses as of present for the Derby that they are now, and you can tell me, you have to make, the the game is you have to make one bet on these numbers, and I'll give you Tis the Law 12 to 1, Nadal 12 to 1, Authentic 12 to 1, Thousand Words 16 to 1, Maxfield 20 to 1, we didn't talk about him, but I'm throwing him in, Sole Volante, who we saw win last weekend at 16 to 1, Dennis's moment at 20 to one, or since we mentioned Sole Volante, I'll also throw in Independence Hall, who I think ran sneaky well into the hot pace the other day at 25 to one. Where, where do the Tugel bucks go in that roster? Well, uh, one horse that I'd be interested in that uh, you did not bring up, but is making his uh, three-year-old debut Friday at Tampa is Governor Morris. Would love to know what he is on the line before I have to, make that final pick if you have that information. I do. I do indeed. 40 to 1 for Governor Morris right now. I mean, 
probably you'd have to it's a, a flip of the coin between tis the law and thousand words was i get 16 to 1 on thousand thousand words yes you do 12 to 1 on tis the law yeah i would have to take the 12 to 1 on tis the law uh we've seen him overcome uh the, the trouble trip and and i you know he did not have a good trip in that last race and ran a hundred buyer um but if i you know as a gambler and a handicapper and 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 uh i think governor morris at 40 40 to one is a horse uh certainly friday will tell us a lot but you know lightly raised horse broke his maiden very impressively at saratoga he's by constitution uh, he's bred to run all day, and his his second lifetime star, he got beat by Maxfield, but uh, ran a huge race, and um, I'll take him at 40 to 1 right now. No shame, no shame in that. Let's talk about Constitution for a minute. How historic has his achievement been, and what are you expecting to see going forward? Well, I mean, as far as historic, you know, he only has the one crop of, of racing age so far so so he'll need to follow it up here in the second crop and third crop but uh um you know from from a, a stallion farm standpoint these are the kind of horses that you hope you have you know we were lucky enough to have some monsters in the stallion barn they're kind of getting up there in age and stored humor and spites town and tis tis now and and they they're horses that are gonna you know have impacts on the breed for a very long time and uh constitution looks like uh Maybe that horse that in, in this next wave of, of generational sires, um, we're going to be talking about him in the same breath as we do Tappet and Medallidoro and, and Spitestown and, and Distorted Humor. So um, the fact that he has had so many top-level colts seems like every weekend we're talking about one in a prep or, or uh, breaking his maiden very impressively. So um, it's it's incredible. It's uh, it's really i mean you just you're in awe of it and uh you appreciate it and they don't come too often like this so uh pretty excited about it derby coming up of course uh if you forced me to answer that same question i'm pretty intrigued by nadal the other day as they hit the line in the San Vicente, I was on air with Steve Bick, so I was able to record my instant reaction, and it was like, well, not exactly a performance that makes you say, we have seen the Derby winner. But the more I thought about it, how hard he ran throughout the race, how sharp that seems to be for his body type, potentially, the seven furlongs, I think this is one who's who's going to look more brilliant and possibly be more brilliant as the distances get longer, that 12 to one, I just think this is a horse that's going to be, that's going to go as going to continue to win and go there as one of the couple favorites. I have no problem with it, with any of the thoughts that you gave. And I certainly get tis the law and didn't think that the, the, the Churchill race was no reason to, to get off of his bandwagon. But, but if you made me pick from the list, I'm going to pick, uh, I'm going to go ahead and pick Nadal from here. What are your thoughts on him? Do you have any, any concerns going forward or, or were you just picking one out of many that you feel like have big chances? Well, I think, you know, have, he's only gone run twice. So he is short on, on experience as far as brilliance. I mean, he's, He's about as brilliant of a, of a three-year-old that we've seen so far. His, his maiden victory was 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 special, and and to come back kind of on short short rest and and win the way he won. Um, he's a special horse. Uh, we just know he's certainly in the hands of, of of the one of the guy that can get that can that can get it done. You know, um, with Bob Baffert and. Uh, but that's just that's the big question mark is is he's going to be short on experience. Um, don't know if he's going to have one or two more races, so he might be on his fourth lifetime start going into the Derby, and and that's uh, you know that's that's a lot to ask of a horse. So um, at a short price, you got to kind of be a little bit leery, and I'm going to take a horse that has a little bit more of a resume. I don't I don't have any problem with that. I also feel like from a future betting perspective to take. 
I feel like taking Nadal now, I'm going to be at the 12 to 1. I'm going to be less likely to want to lump on him when that price gets really short. Whereas I could see Tis the Law continuing to burnish the resume and being a little bit happier to take a shorter number later when we know a bit more. I'm not sure if that's the right game theory or not, but that's that's how my brain is looking at it from here. Any thoughts, Sean, about other things going on in the industry? We had a, an important sale last week. Where What else have you been up to since the last time you were on these airwaves and before we get to today's guest? You know, Pete, it's, uh, we're, we're basically getting ready to, uh, to kick, kick off breeding season. We started breeding some mares here about two days ago, and the babies are dropping all over town. Uh, you know, I think we've probably had about 20, 20 foals already here at Windstar for the year. Uh, Got about 150 more to go, so um, it, it's an exciting time time of the year. Uh, you know, Derby gets everyone kind of through these couple of cold months of, of hard work and, and and long days, and spring's right around the corner. So uh, it's it's an exciting time around here right now, and and hopefully, uh, you know, one of the next Derby winners is born here this year. <laughs> from your mouth to to god's ears anyway sean that sounds that sounds great all right we've got two great guests i think you're going to enjoy the rest of this show so let's get to them right now and now i'd like to welcome in a guest for the first time on this show from carrie bloodstock andrew carrie how are you today andrew i'm very well very well thanks for having me on today really excited to uh, talk to you guys and launch uh, a new chapter and excited to be with you. So thanks for having me. We want to get into that new chapter, but we're going to start off in the last chapter. You came to a lot of folks attention with the work you did over uh, the past few years with leading consigner select sales. Tell us a little bit about your experience with them. Yeah, it was great. Um, just over a decade together, we started in 2009. Uh, there was five partners and we had a great run. Um, basically starting from scratch and hard industry to break into. And within a few years, you know, we'd established ourselves as one of the leading consigners every year. And we sold um, a lot of good horses over the years, like Teppan, who won the Breeders' Cup Mile and, and won at Royal Ascot. And um, then we had uh, horses like Mucho Gusto, who won this year, the uh, the Pegasus. Um, just, you know, an incredible group of horses, Sharp Azteca, Mind Your Biscuit, Gift Box, Dream Tree, Promises Fulfilled, uh, Maximus Mischief. I mean, the list goes on and on. So I was really blessed to be around a lot of good horses. Had great success and definitely some fond memories for sure. I want to pause on Teppin for a minute, a personal favorite of mine, winning grade one races in three countries and really capturing folks' imagination. Did you have much uh, much personal dealings with the great race mare? Well, yeah, when she was, uh, when she was growing up, uh, my, uh, my partners, uh, Mark Mahal, the Brogdons, um, bred and raised her. So I would see her every few weeks, you know, when we would do inspections. So we got to see her grow up and develop and, she was always a great looking filly, and she had um, a full brother who was on the Derby Trail called Punk. We had high hopes for her and put her in the Saratoga sale um, in New York, our, our first consignment up there. Uh, we had a three horse deal, and, and it took a little bit of a shot going up there with the, with the daughter of Bernstein. It wasn't super commercial, but she was a great looking filly, um, and uh, Deuce Great House and, and his late father. Really loved her at the sale, and, and they bought her for uh, Mr. Masterson, and the rest was was history as far as my dealing with her. But definitely loved, you know, cheering for her and seeing her win the Breeders' Cup at Keeneland in front of all of us was was a fantastic, uh, fantastic uh, memory and, and getting put on in the winter circuit with her. But yeah, def definitely a, a very special, uh, special horse to have been around, and um, great, great memories with her. Certainly, Andrew, with uh, with that experience of being around those top class animals, and uh, you know, seeing how how they carry themselves, and and, and then obviously being entrusted and, and taking them up to the ring and selling them, that gives you great experience going forward. And you just recently announced uh, you're you're starting your own bloodstock company. I wanted to let you expand upon that, and uh, you know, what services you're going to offer, and, and it looked like you already you already struck uh, quickly at the February sale. Yeah, thanks. I'm um, definitely excited to get going. Um, 
just uh, excited to do my own thing and, and kind of put all my knowledge and experience to use and, and get to do bloodstock on on all ends as a full-time role and um some of my big clients are sticking with me uh including Coda Grove Farms who I uh I bought the dam of no parole for them uh, back in 2014 and um this is her uh her third full now no parole and great to see what he's doing and and uh wish those connections all the best I saw that uh they recently sold um uh, part of the horse yesterday. So I wish Maggie Moss and the new owner all the best with him and Tommy. But um, yeah, definitely excited to to do more buying and selling and private sales and just to, uh, be a lot more flexible in my day to day roles uh, moving forward with my new company. And, and speaking of uh, no parole, um, I mean, you you bought the mare and fold to him. Is that correct? At the private at the at the auction. Actually, uh, not not in full uh, carrying him. Who was uh, she wasn't full of violence, but uh, I bought her carrying her first foal. Um, she had a beautiful violence colt um, who ended up being a very talented horse. He won three out of six starts. Uh, she was bred back in Louisiana uh, to song and a prayer, and then um, I liked the the violence her first foal so much that we went back to him a second time, which resulted in no parole. So. Um, yeah, he um, he was a result of her having a, such a nice first bowl and went back to violence, who I've always been a fan on, and, and had an even better um, second bowl by him. So he was uh, he was a star from day one. He was such a cool horse mentally, uh, which which gives me a lot of hope that he'll be able to stretch out. He was he had a mind like an older horse, um, which is very very relaxed in everything he did and almost a bit lazy, but just didn't nothing stressed him out. He was just he did what he had to and, and did it easily. And that's that's what he's showing on the track so far. So hopefully that ability to relax will, will help him stretch out these longer races coming up. That makes sense to me. I wanted to talk to you about how you got involved in racing in the first place. How far back do you go with the sport? So I go all the way back as as far as I can remember. I was uh, born in Africa and grew up there um, till I was eight years old. But some of my earliest memories are, are looking at the form in Africa and going to Barradale race course. And, um, just always loved looking at the horses in the paddock and picking, you know, trying to pick winners. I, I was hooked from an early age and I uh, did some uh, horse riding as well when I was a kid. So always loved being around the animals. When uh when our family moved to California in the late eighties, uh, I kept following it as much as I could. Just in, enjoyed reading the, the newspaper every day and seeing the entries. And, uh, once I got a little older and uh, the internet came around, just got that much easier for me to follow racing and watch races and read the form. And I was totally hooked. It's been definitely a lifelong love affair, and uh, I'm just. I still have to kind of pinch myself, but I get to do this for a living every day. It cut out for a second there when you were talking about your growing up experience, but I believe you yes. said it was in Zimbabwe. Yes. I'm just curious to know a little Zimbabwe, bit about yeah. about that experience and and what that was like. Yeah, no, it, it was a absolutely amazing place to grow up and be a kid. Um, just an incredibly beautiful country, great people, um, just incredible natural beauty. Uh, I definitely miss it. I mean, it was, uh, unfortunately, we've had a lot of political turmoil since we left, but just incredible people and, and the, just the natural beauty of the place is, is hard to, hard to fathom. Uh, it was it's like growing up in a, in a wonderland, you know, when you can go on safaris and see all the wild animals. And it's just, it's like a dreamland, but definitely instilling me a love of, of animals and horses. Um, to be able to do, you know, work with animals and, and do that for a business uh, for my career is just especially gratifying. Were you aware of racing during your time in Zimbabwe, or did that come later on on trips? Yeah, no, I I, I would read the the little handicapping column as much as I could, even when I was five or six years old, and would always be trying to drag my mom to go to the go to the races and just look at the horses in the paddock and try and pick winners. And 
I always loved horses with blinkers because I thought they looked like they were paying out the battle. So that was that was one of my early my early handicapping angles. Oh, that's funny. I thought they looked really cool, but yeah, so great memories for sure. At what point did you decide that racing was more than something that you were just going to enjoy as a fan, and that this is what you wanted to do for your living? So when I was a uh, freshman at the University of Colorado, I took a class on sports business. Uh, a really cool like evening class with some that had great uh, speakers come in, um, sports agents, former athletes, general managers. And, um, you know, we got to talk about the business of sports a lot. And once I started diving into horse racing and seeing all the all the business opportunities in it and opportunities to invest. And, buying and selling horses and just a whole new, you know, world of, of business. You know, it's, it's like stock trading, you know, just with a, you know, just with animals involved. And, and it's, it's a hell of a lot of fun way to make a living. And, you know, you're trying to constantly gather information and process information and make a, as educated and, you know, informed guess as you can on whether you're buying something to resell. I just found the whole challenge, you know, very, very appealing and, mentally stimulating and and you get to get to travel you get to go to races meet those people so for me it was you know it was a perfect fit for for what i wanted to do and you know loving the sport first of all and then getting a chance to make a living in it you know that was all i needed to to go ahead so what's your absolute favorite part of the job um i think my favorite part is is probably planning a planning a mating and seeing you know a full born that kind of kind of is exactly what you were hoping when you thought about what the stallion looks like what the mare looks like then the, the mare produces a foal that is a combination of the two that you're hoping for and then seeing that foal grow up and develop and, and go to the race go to the races and win races i mean it's it's really incredible to see that whole thing come full circle um that's really, really gratifying for me because you're kind of trying to put all your knowledge to use uh, and taking, you know, what you know about about bloodlines and confirmation and trying to create a new horse. It's quite a quite a fascinating enterprise for me. And I also love just being at the sales and looking at horses and trying to project what they're going to be down the line and projecting their potential of what what kind of race horse or sale horse you think they're going to be. Uh, I just find that endlessly fascinating i can do it for hours and hours a day and it doesn't feel like work at all that's very cool definitely enjoy that is there a specific two two follow-ups on that is there a specific horse you were thinking of when you mentioned that about one that comes out the way that you were imagining the the combination of of the traits funny yeah i mean i definitely think no parole you know falls in that category because his mother was really really fast uh, she was incredibly fast, really. I think she broke her maiden going four and a half furlongs. Um, and she was very effective over short distances. And um, Violence was a very fast horse, but he stretched out as a two-year-old and was on the derby trail. And physically, I thought they were a great match. And I was trying to breed a horse who would be around, you know, at his best around the mile because those horses tend to give you the most versatility is you know in american racing as far as being able to go six furlongs to a mile and an eighth which is where the, the majority of all are but that's um you know it's it's definitely something where you're you're trying to see what you have in the mare and then what you need you know as far as time goes and then you know what kind of fall you're trying to produce and you try to put that all together and come up with result possible sometimes it sometimes it works like you hope sometimes you thought you would but that's that's <laughs> also the, the fun of it so yeah when you were talking about hanging around the sale and trying to project what these horses are going to do and just the atmosphere and all that as a horse player, that made me think of just time spent at the racetrack. And it made me want to ask, do you play the horses at all? Or do you feel like you have enough action in everything you're working on behind the scenes? But you struck me as somebody, the way you talked about that, that, that might really also enjoy a day at the races. Oh yeah, for sure. I, I definitely enjoy uh, I enjoy handicapping. I enjoy going to the races. I love trying to pick winners, uh, both on the form and in the paddock. And um, it, it's 
definitely something I really enjoy. It's a big puzzle trying to figure everything out. Um, now I really, really enjoy it uh, and look forward to doing more of that and being able to go over the races a lot more now um, with my new role, just being freed up to do that. And especially with uh, Keeneland spring and fall meet, just being looking forward to being out there every morning and go to the races as much as I can. It's definitely um, something I really look forward to. Andrew, we're going to put you on the spot. Uh, the big topic right. of the show today is, is certainly uh, Triple Crown talk, and, and this time of year everyone starts to, to have their derby horse. Who is your derby horse currently? And aside from no parole, uh, if, you had to, <laughs> from no if you had to put your $2 on yeah. the nose today, uh, who, would you be, yeah. who would you be on? You know, I mean, Tis the Law was obviously very impressive um, in his comeback race. Uh, didn't run so hot at Churchill, but, you know, I'm sure he'll, um, you know, he had his excuses for that, and he was coming off a huge race in the Champagne. Um, I still go back to Dennis's moment. I mean, he was, his first few races are so impressive, and, you know, obviously had the terrible trip in the Breeders' Cup, but I'm really looking forward to seeing how he comes back and the family use of it, I believe he's going to. Um, I mean, when he broke his maiden, you know, people were talking about him like he was the next coming. So um, I'd say talent-wise, those two are probably at the top. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of races to be run here pretty soon. That'll that'll sort things out a little more. But um, right now, those those would be my top two um, my top two picks at this current time. Dennis's moment, indeed. Pointing to the fountain of youth, everything is supposedly a go. I know just from looking at him as a two-year-old how developed he looked. I mean, you you guys would both know way better than me, but that didn't look like any two-year-old. <laughs> he looked very developed even then. If he's continued to to progress from that time, the others are going to have a, a, a serious horse to have to deal with, but obviously it's a deep and competitive crop, and we really thank you for coming on the show, talking about your background, and we'll be following you with great interest. Godspeed, Andrew Carey, and thanks so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much for having me, and uh, look forward to hopefully uh, coming back on again soon uh, to talk about parole and some other uh, great horses. So thanks again for having me. No good deed goes unpunished around here. That invite will be forthcoming. <laughs> Cheers, my friend. <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks. All the best. Okay. Our next guest has many accomplishments in the world of thoroughbred racing. He's the GM of Newtown Anner Stud. He's also a partner in Blake Albina Thoroughbred Partners. He is Hunsley Albina. How are you today, my friend? Very well. Good to talk to you guys. How are you? Doing great. We wanted to start off, lots of ways we can go in this conversation, but wanted to start off with your recent uh, success at the sale, being involved with this mare in full to American Pharaoh. Tell us what attracted you to this situation. I didn't breed as many, I didn't breed as many mares to American Pharaoh as I probably should have. And I was trying to correct that a little bit at a, at a value. And I thought, you know, I didn't want to buy any mare in full. Um, we, we are breeding more next year. Well, this year, for obviously, foals of next year. But uh, when she came up, it was kind of an opportunity to correct the mistake I think I'd done as far as uh, not breeding for Pharaoh as I should have. Um, and obviously, we get the foal a year earlier than our correction we made, we made this year. So it made a lot of sense. But it also, you know, I really like the family as far as two hot, really high-end fillies in the first two dams. Uh, you know, half to a champion. I don't really think – I think those are plays that, that kind of are, are much safer than, than a general mare play in full American Pharaoh. So, you know, and I thought the price was fair, you know. I wanted to ask about Pharaoh and why you, you didn't – get as involved then and what changed your mind essentially, or what have you seen from the Pharaoh progeny that's gotten you so excited? Well, I think the results at the end of the day, the results are what matter. And, uh, you know, it wasn't that I didn't like him. I think, I think the safest bet, um, in all of breeding is a retiring triple crown winner to stud. I don't, I think 
the second safest bet is a retiring Derby winner to stud in his first year. So I, it's not that I, I don't like to play. You know, I had a bunch of mares going to him the first year, and we just made a change. Because if you remember in that year, it was a pretty difficult year because you had Empire Maker coming back. You had him retiring a stud. You had uh, Pioneer sitting over there at Windstar. And <laughs> I had mares that had worked with different combinations. I mean, obviously, that's the line I want to go to. The Empire Maker, Unbridled, um, Fapiano line is where I wanted to go to with, with certain mares. But um, they just kind of fell into other spots. And, we, you know, my, my other partner, Nick Salusto, which Salusto and Albina uh, manages Newtown Enter together, uh, and, and Ron also. Uh, Ron Blake, who's my partner in Blake, Albina, um, we kind of got together on the phone and we just went a different way. And and I I, I had, I think, three or four originally read, ready to go to Pharaoh and we kind of took a couple off and he said, you know what, if I'm not going to breed a bunch of these things, I'm just going to, I'll be a wait and see on him. We just went on the way. It was a, t- it was a tough year for, I, I think that was, that was a rare, a rare year because having those three sires, same sire line, all right, all coming to stud at the same time. I think that was an interesting year to, to breed because you had a lot of choices. I think you don't get that very much. You and, and you may have, uh, I guess, probably a year later, but you also had Classic Empire in the mix there too, kind of all at the same time. So many, many choices there, but. Um, honestly, one of, one of the fun things that I get to do with my position at Windstar is talk to a lot of breeders and, and people, and there's all kinds of different methods and, and forms, and, and um, certainly we, we share a lot of conversations throughout the, the, the fall and winter on, on matings, and, and you put a lot of time and effort into it. Um, you know, a lot of times it's, it's like kind of uh, envisioning a portrait and, and going from step A to step Z. And hoping it all works out. What is what is your uh, method as far as how do you start with uh, your matings, or do you do you sit down and, and look for specific bloodlines to begin with, or do you have a certain uh, philosophy on, on proven horses or first year horses? Take us through your uh, your process of, of how you mate uh, all the mares that, that you're responsible for. Well, um, yeah, I, I certainly do. I mean, I have theories and hypotheses i don't know if they're any better than any other ones but you know over time kind of hone them and they're what i use and they seem to work well enough for me but i don't i don't really like nicking i think it's destroying our breeding industry i think it's a false science that's been sold to people who don't really want to work on the craft of breeding horses and just want a shortcut and at the end of the day i just don't think there's a shortcut to this i think it requires a lot of skill and even more luck so you know i I don't know that the people who started and and we you know i was when when i worked at bucker moke you know we used we had we used as a tool the works next to look at them and and you know now in, in latter days we you know you'll see uh the true nicks and all the other nicking uh, companies and products. But at the end of the day, I, I don't think necessarily those guys are, are, are pushing their products as, but, uh, as in such, but I think that people are using them for things they're not supposed to be used for. I mean, I think they have way too much of an effect on what uh, studs are retired. Um, you know, at, you know, Sean, I mean, you can speak to this as a, as a guy in the stallion game, I mean, it is a consideration when, when, when you nick well with a majority of mares out there, it's, it's like, well, you got a big pool to choose from. Right. And for me, I just think it's all a bunch of hogwash. You know, I think (laughs) you need to look, you need to look at the damn side pedigree. You need to know about the physicality of the mare and how it combines with the physicality of the stallion. You need to have seen progeny of the stallion. You need to see progeny of the mare. You need to put that together in your head and breed properly. You need to have known what has worked in previous generations, half-sisters, full-sisters. You need to know before that. You need to put all that together and make a decision on a stallion. Uh, looking at uh, damn sire and sire 
or worse yet, sire of sire, is so arbitrarily distant from a decision-making process, I, I can't tell you. And you have people who base a lot of money on those decisions, and I think it's a huge mistake. Um, I'm fascinated by this topic, and I want to just uh, pause on it for a second and, and talk about – you started talking about some of the things one can do as an alternative, I suppose, going through the old books and really being able to look at the, the, the female side, because I mean, just for me as a complete outsider, I was attracted to the idea of nicking in that it seemed to bring some data into a business where it's hard if for me anyway, from the outside perspective to see where that data is, uh, is available. It seemed like a potentially relevant data points, but the more I studied it, when you're dealing with a genetic enterprise and you're not looking at the female, looking into the female family, it immediately made me want to throw up my hands and say, well, how valuable could this be? I, and I guess my question is, I will get to one. My question is uh, to hear a little bit more about what you do instead and how you replace the idea of having those, those firm data points. That's the appeal, right? It's, it's tangible in its data. But the, the, well, like you said, once you look into it and you evaluate the data, you realize this is of no value at all. Uh, and the fact that they assign, I mean, the, only, the, the part that's intellectually dis dishonest that I find is, is the, the grade. <laughs> now you're dealing with, I don't think I've ever, I mean, you know, you know A, B, C, and D. You know, I mean, people relate to that from, you know, school, and then they apply it with the same value to horses, and it couldn't be further from the truth. You know, it, these values don't represent what they are uh, as far as, you know, breeding, breeding a mare. If you have a mare <clears throat> and she has four foals, and one of them was the stake horse, okay, and it's by a sire that nicks with a, a, a B or a D, you know, a B or a D, a low nick score. And and you're looking deciding whether to breathe compared to an A plus Nick or a styline from either the same sire that she's already produced the steak horse from or a styline of that family. That is clearly the choice to go with. That's twenty five percent correct if they're fourfold versus a Nick that if it isn't a direct cross, if it isn't sire with dam sire, is probably a couple percent. The actual sires you're breeding to have a higher stake percentage than the freaking Nick you're breeding on. Sorry, I don't know if you can use language on this. I don't know kind of. <laughs> that's okay. That's that's an off that's an off the goal post. Yeah, we're good. Yeah, <laughs> I love that you're passionate. No, I well, I can if you want to. I'll, no, I mean, no, it's okay. It doesn't matter. I love your passion. People know I use foul language. <laughs> <laughs> the passion is what really strikes but, me. The, the the passion comes from this. So I'll. I'll, when, when Nick and I, Ron and I will get new clients, we'll have conversations with them and they'll start in on how their mares Nick really well with this and our work to, to make them unlearn the garbage that they have in their head. <laughs> is so, it's so much work and it's, it's something I wish I didn't have to deal with. You know, I think at the end of the day, if you have a broodmare operation and, um, or, or any, 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 you want to be in any aspect of the horse business. You need good representation, good agents. I cannot emphasize this enough to everyone I talk to. Even if it's not me, even if it's not someone I know, if, if they're good and they know how to, you, you need to get, I mean, I'm not saying you should get anyone, and that happens to people, and people, you know, obviously have bad experiences in our game. But if you get a reputable, knowledgeable person who's devoted their life to this, I think that is the, the ultimate way to have success in this game. Uh, I think you know, it's not something that you can, you know, you had success in another business and you want to spend like, you know, a couple hours a week on and expect to have the same success. You're, you're not going to do that. You need someone representing your interests. You need someone who understands pedigrees, who understands how to read the pedigrees, how to mate the horses, how to um, understand the markets. And that's, that's the other part of it. Like I, you know, in, back in the day, you used to hear, well, I breed to race. I'm not a commercial breeder. And then you hear people say, well, I'm, you, you wouldn't hear people say I'm a commercial breeder because that was kind of like 
the black sheep. You don't want to, it wasn't, um, it, it wasn't, uh, you know, a good thing to say, well, I'm not a breeder race guy. I'm a commercial breeder. Right. But I think it's irresponsible to be a breeder and not consider the commercial aspect of the market. Because at the end of the day, every breeder has to, uh, a horse has to be sold. So if you're, uh, breeding mares and at the end of the day you're still running them and you want to create a stallion well if you if you didn't com- if you didn't consider in any way the commercial market at the end of the day what do you have you have a stallion that people are going to pay not much money for that is not going to come back and, and and replenish the money you spent all those years to achieve that stallion so the idea that none of, that you can be a breeder without being commercially minded in any way, I think that's an archaic way of thinking, and I think it's 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 irresponsible. And and I do think uh, you know what you take out of it is 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 the people who do give their life to, to the business. It's 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 a life. It's a passion. It's something they wake up and they think about it and, and try to fall asleep because about it all all the time. It's just in their head at at all moments. But um, you know. But that's what I think we also need to portray to people is this is a very passionate game and there's there's ways to do it right and there's ways to, to not do it. And I do think, um, you know, the nicking programs have, have some use in some formats, but um, as you pointed out, Hunsley, many people, um, they don't really know what it's actually telling them and what, what it's based on. And, um, you know, it, with selling seasons, that, that's something that – that we run into a lot of roadblocks sometimes is is there are many breeders who do use it as basically their guideline um, and they live and die by it. And I might look at a mare and know that it's an absolutely fantastic mating. This is where she needs to go, but it's given a C neck and they won't even listen to me. And, and that's something that I think we need to, take a take a big look at in the business is is don't lose the imagination it, it, this is not a computer program that can just spit you out champions like there are uh obviously luck is a big part of it but um there's there's gut feelings there's there's like as hunsley said the the physicality of both stallions and mares and 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 what you're trying to put together uh so i, I don't i hunsley went on his rant i don't want to go on on too much of a rant here but but he definitely hit the nail on the head, and and it's um, you know, you can't take the horsemanship out of the game, and and that is something that needs to be expanded upon and kept uh, at the forefront, and that's uh, that's where you can have the greatest success is is, you, is put as much of that just as good as you can find experience in horsemanship into every part of your program. I'm an ag school graduate, and uh, when you go into um, genetics classes, you realize very quickly what you're told but you also realize very quickly that what we do in horse horses is not genetics like we're we're just we're just making stuff up here but (laughs) but we 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 do not not in the same way that bov you know the bovine and other 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 livestock is like they can tell you you know yields at 90 days on cattle i mean that's real you know animal genetics you know but what we're trying to do with performance space is very different but but the scary part of that is, I mean, here's, here's a scary thought, right? And, and I think it's very interesting when you watch and see what other programs have done, long-term programs. So you look at a guy like Ken Ramsey, right? And you'll look at some of his mares, and they're great, they're great lessons. Because he'll have mares that you'll, you'll, you'll see them in sales catalogs, and, you know, there'll be 20-year-old mares who's been bred like 10, 14 times to kids' joy. When, when does that ever happen? It never happens. You never, you never see really in modern breeding a guy breeding the same to the same sky and over and over again. And, and if you look at the produce record. You'll see a marginal stakes horse, maybe a, not a grade two stakes horse, another marginal. You'll, you'll, see, you'll see different things. But what you realize is 14 times they bred the kitten's joy, and they got a lot of duds, but they got three really, you know, you know one graded stakes horse, you know, you'll get a couple greatest stakes horses and you realize as a breeder, if you're trying across a particular cross or particular stein one time, you may be right and still be wrong at the end of the day. Your foal may be the wrong foal, but you may have been right with your cross. So if you have a near miss, you try again. Don't just throw it out. And, and that's kind of terrifying because 
because, you know, you think you try something, it doesn't work. Okay, you move on to the next thing. But if you look at the way he's kind of shown with his marriage, that isn't necessarily the truth. You know, it's a great point. It's a great point. Yeah, As gamblers, we think about this all the time. And on our other show where we talk about betting on horses, we say, focus on the decision you made, not the outcome you get. As gamblers, we have potentially dozens of chances a day to see the outcomes. As a breeder making this one decision, you get one chance a year. You'd never, with gambling, say, oh, that didn't work that one time. Now we're going to do something else. You'd end up chasing your tail. But it sounds like that's a lot of what happens on the breeding side. You do. You do, and you don't know it. And um, look, there's a lot of, uh, uh, this is a lot of, whatever you want to call it, gambling in, in breeding, I think. Sure. I mean, it, it, there's a lot of gambling in there um, at a much higher level. And um, and there are a lot of factors, you know. You can look at your progeny and you sell them and they go to someone who you think is not a great trainer. And you say, well, you write it off. You say, well, it wasn't a great trainer, not a great training job, you know. And, you know, maybe you do something else. I mean, it, it's there's, there's so many factors. Throwing injuries, injuries, I imagine, could throw an absolute wrench in the works too. The, a horse that had potential and something flukish happens and then you don't get to see that potential. Was it a bad decision to go with that mating? No, it just was unlucky. But yeah. it's, you I, don't know. We've gone far down the rabbit hole and I'm glad we did. These are always supposed to be free-flowing conversations. But Huntsley, with somebody with your time in the game, your experience in the game, I want to hear a little more about you and We'll just start with the basic question of how you got involved with horses in the first place. Uh, I'm third generation. My my grandfather owned uh, race horses in the Middle East, and my father was an amateur uh, jockey uh, when he was younger, and then he became a trainer at the age of 18 and uh, trained for the King of Jordan's uncle oh, wow. in Jordan and uh lebanon and actually egypt also so he trained in the middle east a little bit and then uh in around 1980 um he was hired as the uh private trainer in england for uh buckramog mr mahmoud Fustak. and so we moved to england at that point and we lived there until 87 when we moved when he retired from training and came to run Buckram Oaks Foodmare Division here in Lexington, which was which is now Stone Street, but it was Buckram Oak at the time. Uh, I was raised on that farm um, and just, you know, bit with the bugs. They discouraged me from doing anything horse-related, but <laughs> this is the story. It just kind of gets you and it's exciting and, you know, it's nothing like winning a race, you know, so I kind of you can't you can't lose that you know everything else seems so unexciting uh so i went to uk uh ag school and um i didn't really i wasn't i wasn't pushing for the farm part of it as much um the agent part was exciting and i i still i still do a lot of that with my partner nick but um as time went on you know we had different clients and we developed a couple farms ran a couple farms and it was something that um, I had strong opinions on, and and uh, with my partner Ron, I was able to execute exactly the way I wanted to. And you know, we try to refine every year, get better every year at what we do. That's why I get up in the morning and enjoy it so much. You know, Andrew Carey, our our first guest on the show today, we put him on the spot, and I'm going to do the same for you. Except this, it's going to be a pr- two prong uh, question for you. A uh, it's that time of year where everybody needs to start picking a derby horse. So we want to know who you had to put your two dollars on the nose. Who's that, who? That, who that is going to be? But secondly, uh, I think one of your your greatest not hidden talents, but hidden, but one of your talents is as a cigar connoisseur. So you also have to give to the viewers if they had to have one cigar with them on Derby Day, what that would be as well. <laughs> the first question not tough. Second question tougher. First question is tis the law. I think is. No question. I think Barkley is handling that horse very well. I think naysayers came off of that jockey club race talking a bunch of smack about a horse that did nothing wrong on a sloppy track that was 
an irrelevant race. He had had time off. He ran a great champagne. He ran, a, I, in my opinion, a good race there on Churchill's track, on a soft track. Came back, won very impressively. Um, the horse hadn't done anything wrong. And Barkley has done well managing him. And he's by a sire that I don't, I don't even know who to compare his numbers to because they're outstanding and, and crazy. And I just hope he keeps on doing it because um, we need a sign like that. So as far as cigar is concerned, I don't know. I mean, it's, I'll give you two answers because there's an easy to get cigar. That's good. And then um, a hard to get cigar. So an easy to get cigar. That's really good is the, CAO Brasilia box press. It's available a lot of places. It's uh, like an $8 cigar, but it is very, very good. It is way better than its price point. It's made by a company that um, is a is conglomerate owned. So they really don't have a lot of great stuff, but somehow this recipe has stayed good. And it's a really, really good cigar to have and it's a reasonable price point. The other one is a PG or a Paul Grammarian, which is like a boutique cigar maker. Uh, they're hard to find. If you find them, buy them and smoke them. You'll love them. Um, but those are, those are my answers. It's fantastic stuff all the way around. <laughs> what a great visit today. You know, no good deed goes unpunished. As I said before, we're going to say it again to you. We're going to have to bring you back soon, but you are a bit of a ringer. You do have some podcast experience. Tell us about that before we let you get out of here. Yeah. I, 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 I one of my close friends, uh, well, he was a stand-up comedian, and he, he started a stand-up comedy record label, and I helped him start that. And uh, that was quite successful, but he's branched out into um, podcasts. And uh, they have a one of the podcasts on their roster is uh, Can Do with, with Bill Duncliffe. Uh, it's a very good podca- podcast. It's a little bit of history Uh of horse racing, obviously, a little bit of discussion of horses. It's not really a handicapping show, although Bill is a handicapper. Uh, it's more of a love of the sport. You never know what you're going to hear on there. They did a great uh, Breeders' Cup pick six edition uh, about the, the, the fraud committed in the pick six uh, some years ago, the Volpone years. They did a great um, Long Acres racetrack tribute, which is very interesting. A lot of weird, uh, interesting and weird information about Long Acres. Um, just stuff like that. It's, it's worth a listen to anyone who's in the horse business or just loves horses. I'll second that emotion. He did make the questionable decision to have me on as a guest at one point, but other than that, his choices have been pretty good. And it is a little bit different than anything you'll hear on our podcast network too. That interesting blend of history. And he's had some horse players on there recently, including our own uh, Jonathan yeah. Kinchin, who's on there from time to time well hunsley thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, don't be surprised if your your phone's ringing again soon between your own experience and your ability to rant on interesting issues in the in the thoroughbred industry you, you'll surely be back again soon okay well thank you for having me guys and uh i look forward to hearing from you again that's going to do it for this edition of the In the Ring Pedigree Podcast. I want to thank Sean Tugel as always, and of course, today's guests, Andrew Carey and Hunsley Albina, for their time. What fun visits those were. This show's been a production of In the Money Media. In the Money Media's business manager is Drew Coatney. Our chief creative officer is Jonathan Kinchin. I'm Peter Thomas Fornital. May the hammer drop your way.